Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Sarah Marie Martin. I'm a partner in the investment banking division, and I'm especially excited to introduce you to Dana Kennedy. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning former editor of the New York Times. She now is the administrator of the Pulitzer Prizes. She oversees the most prestigious awards in journalism. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, jumping in, you were born and raised near Fort Knox, Kentucky. You're the daughter of a military family. You were the first in your family to graduate college mm -hmm. and would go on to study journalism at the University of Kentucky. What drew you to storytelling and the world of journalism? I started telling stories before I could even write. I would make up stories and visualize them. And from an early age, I would say from about 12, I started writing poems and short stories. And my favorite question has always been why. And so the combination of being inquisitive and loving words drew me to journalism. Um, and not just journalism, but writing, because I, I write different things. I wrote, uh, I was a reporter for the New York Times for many, many years, but I've, I've either contributed to or written several books. Writing for me is like painting or playing the piano. That's how it feels when I write. Uh, it's not always easy to write something that you hope will move and inform people, but for me, it's, it's a calling and a way of life. And so my mom asked me in high school, what's your plan B? And I said, there is no plan B. So you joined the New York Times in 1996, and by 2001, you had won a Pulitzer. Um, you were leading the Times series, How Race is Lived in America. Tell us about that series, what you learned, and how do you think things would be different in 2018 reporting on race in America? Mm -hmm. What I learned through that series is that like religion and sex, race is one of the most difficult things for people to discuss and to discuss honestly. To the extent that people are honest, it's usually only with their immediate family, maybe even just their spouse, not even necessarily the kids or the extended family. So it's a very difficult thing to talk about uh, and certainly even harder to report on. I think we, what I learned in that project is that there are two steps forward and one step back. And some would argue, and I don't know that I would completely disagree that we're in a step back mode right now. Um, but every generation gets better. I look at our, our kids' generation and every generation makes progress and we'll keep moving forward, but it's difficult. And I, you know, I've thought about this question a lot, not in the context of this talk, but just in general. I actually think, sadly, that race story would be the same today. Um, I think we won the Pulitzer for that in 2001, so it was published in like 2000. Not much has changed. There are some things that have changed, but then we digress. And so we just have to hope that over the life of a, uh, over a lifetime, we get better and every generation gets better. And I think that is true. I look at my son, as I said, and his friends. I look at some of the things that have been positive, like the fact that I'm the first person of color to run the Pulitzer Prizes. And so there is progress, but we have a long way to go and everybody has to help. Everybody has to be a part of this conversation and, and thinking in your own lives, what can I do uh, as a citizen to, to make it better? Before leaving the Times for your current post, you oversaw talent development and diversity there. How far have newsrooms come on this front, and how much work is there left? I would say the answer is the same, uh, which is not nearly far enough. I think most um, journalists would say, who've been in the business a while, that the most progress was made in the 80s. There was really a concerted effort 
to advance in terms of diversity, not as a social uh, imperative, but as a good as good business. You can't tell the story of America, and certainly not today, with a monolithic newsroom. You just you just can't do it. Um, and with a you know homogenous newsroom of, of of people who are are all alike, you can't. The country doesn't look that way. It's not it's not it's never going to look that way again. And so different perspectives, different voices are critical to storytelling. So a lot of work has to be done, but I think what's happened in the last certainly 10 years um, is that particularly newspapers, the news industry in general, but certainly newspapers are fighting for their survival, especially in small towns and regional newspapers in particular. They're losing traditional advertising dollars. Digital advertising isn't making up the gap. And so uh, one of the first things to be put on the back burner is diversity. It doesn't cost a lot to move the needle on, on diversity. And again, not as a social experiment and not as, as anything to do for altruistic reasons, but because it really does matter. Uh, uh, imagine trying to cover the uh, Obama campaign with an all-white staff, or imagine trying to understand Appalachia with an all-minority staff, or women with an all-male staff. It just matters in terms of different perspectives being brought to bear in coverage. Last year, you were named as the administrator of the Pulitzer Prizes. What made you take the job and leave the world of day-to-day -day journalism to become a judge of other people's writing? So I, I really felt as though I accomplished most of what I wanted to accomplish at the Times. And I'd been there 21 years by then. I wanted to write more books, work on this movie. Uh, and then the search committee for the Pulitzers called me and asked about if I'd be interested in this role. And I thought, hmm. The chance to champion uh, the industry and American journalism and freedom of the press was something that I felt was in line with, with, with being part of my calling. Writing and, and promoting um, the importance of the written word and how that can impact our lives is something that I've always held very dear. And I thought, this is a way for me to influence that. On a, on a national and on a global level, and nothing makes me happier than promoting other people's work. I remember when I switched from being a writer at the Times to an editor and managing other reporters, I used to think, and people would ask me, don't you miss being on the front page? Don't you miss having a scoop? Well, I did all that for years. You know, I chased wildfires and space shuttle explosions. I covered murder cases. You know, I, I, I was on the front page a lot um, and, and did stories that were impactful, and, I, and when I switched to editing, nothing made me happier than developing other people and promoting their stories and taking a story that you know, was on a section front and getting it on the front page. And so in that same regard, nothing makes me happier than now than handing a Pulitzer Prize to a deserving winner. It is extraordinary, um, and so I'm, I'm really honored to do this. This year, front and center at the awards, was the incredible reporting that sparked the conversation happening across the country around the Me Too movement. What are your thoughts on the impact that reporting has had on that conversation, and where do you think we're going? I think that the reporting on that is why we're having the conversation. I think these, this is the kind of story that comes along once in a lifetime and will be studied for generations uh, on the order of Watergate, I would say. Um, there are times in, in our country where the journalism is so impactful that it's really on that level, and that this is this is one of those moments. Um, uh, it, it was extraordinary because what it really took was I think people tried to get to the story for years, and it took a few brave women coming forward and allowing their names to be used publicly, and that opened the floodgates. 
And once that happened, I mean, this, it, there was just wave after wave after wave of more revelations, more stories, and, and it became a moment and a movement. And it's interesting, I just wrote um, an introduction to a book that the Times is doing. They, they're doing a collection of their civil rights coverage, taking front pages and old uh, stories and putting it in a book, and I wrote the introduction, it's on civil rights. And I, I remember it saying in there, as I was flipping through some of these clips, I wonder when those reporters realized what they, what they were doing was a movement. And so, with this coverage as well, they started out doing what reporters do, you dig, because something's intriguing and you think there's something there, and at some point they had something, and then they had something more powerful, but I wonder when was that moment when they realized, oh my God, this is a movement, and a movement isn't a movement until it happens, right? And so they really created this, and it changed the nature of the conversation about gender relationships, gender issues, abuse in the workplace, permanently. And, and global, I was speaking in uh, uh, Norway a few weeks ago about the First Amendment and freedom of the press, and they were asking about this there and talking about you know, the Me Too movement spreading to Europe. So it really, it really changed things on a, on a global level. And that's what I mean about the, the nature of this reporting being historic. The other big moment at the Pulitzers was when you said the name Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> you could see the smile on your face. <laughs> he was the first hip hop artist ever to be honored by the prizes. Talk about that moment and what it means for the music world and beyond, including kids like your son, Jordan. Mm -hmm. I think even people on our board of directors would say yes, that there are, are folks who said what took so long. Um, we had the right artist with the right album. There, he was, he's brilliant. He came to the, the Pulitzer um, Awards ceremony and is the humblest, kindest young man. I thought, I can't imagine you on a stage rapping. Not that, you know, <laughs> he just, because he seems so shy and, and just really kind, uh, very thoughtful and very deep. But the music itself is just brilliant. Our jury, the music jury, is made up of classically trained composers and, you know, music historians. They chose him and felt really strongly that this was someone who deserved this. And so the way it came about was, the jury was deliberating on some work and said this particular piece that they were, and this artist that they were deliberating about, uh, that the work had hip hop influences. And someone said, well, gosh, how many times have we heard that? If we're considering work that has hip hop influence, why aren't we considering hip hop itself? And they stopped right there and said, we should be considering, you know, who should we think about? And someone said, Kendrick Lamar. They downloaded the album immediately, listened to it, and said, this is amazing. And it went from there. And uh, we don't often talk about the board votes, but I will tell you, because of the historic nature of this and so much has been written about it, when it came to the board level, it was a unanimous vote and people were very excited about it. The work that the Pulitzer Prizes recognize every year highlight just how important good journalism is for the sake of democracy. Journalism, however, seems to be under a daily assault. As a journalist, how do you think about this moment and what is the role of a news organization in countering the narrative? Okay, I get this question a lot and I've thought a lot about it. And there are different points of view on this, and I, I'm of different minds about it. So I'll say a couple things. One of the best things we can do as journalists in general right now is just what I would say that I, is one of my guiding principles about life, is, which is run in your own lane. Do the work. Let the work speak for itself. You know, we honored uh, this year with one of our Pulitzers, the Cincinnati newspaper, for taking a look at a week worth of heroin addiction in their community. That wasn't fake news. Um, you know, there was a commentator who wrote extraordinary columns in Alabama about life in Alabama and Alabama politics. That wasn't fake news. And so 
Um, you know, there was a small t uh, uh, paper in, in a small town in California that covered um, wildfires in their town, even while their, some of their own reporters' homes were under assault. That was not fake news. And so one of the things that I think we have to do is just do what newspapers are doing over and over throughout this country. And we saw, unfortunately, in Maryland with the shooting deaths of, of some of our colleagues there, just how dangerous this work can be. But I will tell you, and I can say this with utter conviction, having been in this industry for so long, most journalists take this, almost all journalists take this, this work incredibly seriously and consider it a calling and an important part of American democracy. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. People do this not for the money, not for the glory, but because they believe this is really a, an important part of American democracy and having an informed citizenry, and that's why we do it. And I think, um, sure, there, it's a difficult time. Uh, there have been others. The, during the, the Nixon administration was, you know, Nixon was famous for having a contentious relationship with the press. There are lots of influences right now that are that are hard at work to undermine the press, not just you know the relationship in Washington with the press, but the fact that the profit models of news organizations are under threat again because you know advertising dollars are drying up. Uh, social media makes it easier for people, including the president, to bypass uh, traditional press and reach their audiences. But I will also tell you, it's a tremendously hopeful time to be a reporter. Now more than ever, we need people who are interested in this kind of work, being engaged in it and telling these stories and being committed to this work. And also, there are positions that exist now that didn't even exist when I, when I started out. Now, of course, reporters are writing on social media and they're tweeting and we have all these positions, producers, video journalists that just didn't exist 20 years ago. So there's a lot of opportunity as well. Does it make it harder to break a story? And I don't think it makes it harder to break a story. The, 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 the leading most difficult thing right now is I think this idea that there's debate about what's truth. That's something that is, is fairly new. I mean, a fact was always a fact was a fact. So it's not the breaking of the story, because going back to what I was saying, it's just the, the basic reporting, relationships, sourcing, document searches, those things haven't changed in terms of how you break a story. What has changed is when you do break a story, someone's saying what's up is down and what's down is up, or what's cold is hot and hot is cold. That's hard to combat. Uh, um, and the way, but again, the way you do that is with evidence and documents and good reporting. I don't think you know, the, the Me Too coverage, for example, is in dispute. Um, and, and, and when you nail a story, when you have it cold, no matter who is saying this is fake or this isn't, this isn't authentic, you, you keep going and you keep at that story. And the truth, the truth in general will, 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 I think, always rise. It just sometimes takes a little longer. Um, and I want to talk about your memoir, Journal for Jordan. It started out as an essay for the Times about the death of your fiance, First Sergeant Charles Monroe King, during the Iraq War in 2006, in the journal that he left for your son Jordan. It really became your own letter to your son about Charles and your relationship. What did you want readers and parents to learn from the book? <sighs> well, first of all, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that all these years later, it's still very hard for me to talk about this. I've talked about it a lot because I went on a book tour. Um, what I want people to know is, uh, there's so many things, but starting with why I did this. Um, when you have a tragedy in your life, you have one or two options. 
this could have broken me. I mean, I could barely get out of bed, but I had a baby who needed me. Um, and so you, you can either dust yourself off and do something positive or let it break you. Now, listen, I'm not saying this was easy. It aged me a lot. I have aged so much since Charles died. But I got up because I had a baby who needed me and deserved a strong mother, a mother to show him how to, how to live and how to be happy. Um, but what I wanted people to know through the book is a couple things. Number one, the power of of patriotism. Uh, he was a he was a soldier who gave his life for our country, but he also left this journal for our our son before he was even born. He started writing it. Two hundred pages. He he wrote to him about the power of prayer. He told him how to choose a wife. He told him about racial discrimination. He 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 made Bible ver He told him about Bible verses. He told him about his own childhood, why he wanted a son. He told him about sex. Um, you know, just. It was, a, it was meant to be a conversation for him. And on the last page, he put a letter that essentially said, son, this is everything I could think of to teach you to be a man if I don't make it home. And he had 30 days left when he was blown up and killed. Uh, he did get to meet him once when he was six months old. They had two weeks together. But I wanted people to understand that it's important, number one, and this is a message that I speak, I've spoken a lot about this, and I, I, I particularly want men to hear this because women, I think women, we journal, we're, you know, for the most part, we, 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 we gab with our girlfriends, we do this. Men don't necessarily journal as much, and I can't tell you the number of soldiers in particular have come to me and said they're now taking journals to Afghanistan and Iraq with them to write with their children. Define your legacy. You know, whether it's writing letters to your kids on their birthday every year or whatever, but it's really important that you be the author of your legacy, whether it's through video or even just talking to your family about what matters to you and how you want to be thought of. And so I wanted people to understand that it's important to define your legacy. I wanted them to know what military families go through and the sacrifices they make every day without books being written about them. And I wanted to send a message about resilience, uh, you know, when I came out of the other, other end of this, and it wasn't easy. Your story got the attention of one reader and parent by the name of Denzel Washington. Yes. Okay, this is really funny. My agent called me, this was many years ago, uh, and said, I'm calling to let you know Denzel Washington's going to call you, and the reason I'm calling to tell you that is so you don't think it's a joke and hang up. <laughs> he calls with a group of people, and I talk to him just like I was talking to you. I'm talking to you guys, and he loved the story. Uh, we talked later, and one of the main things I said was, I just... I'm not Hollywood, I'm not, that's not me. I intended to write a book and it's now in 10 countries and eight languages and all these years later I still hear from readers, I've spoken to the, at the Pentagon and on military bases and you know, I'm, I'm proud of that. Like, I'm, I don't go to church every, every Sunday but I, I feel like I'd like to live my life in service to God and, if, and I'm, I'm trying really hard and humbly to do something to you know, make, make a difference and to, to show that I'm grateful for this life he granted me and my beautiful son. Um, so I didn't really care who it was uh, in terms of the name. I had my Denzel, and his name was Charles. I just wanted this movie to be done honorably, and I'm a producer on the, on the film. It's different for me because it's based on the book. It's not a literal interpretation. And because I'm a journalist, I'm so used to everything being factual and accurate and truthful. And to make up something is very foreign to me. Uh, but the, but I, am, uh, I am happy with the outcome, and I feel like it really did capture the spirit of the journal and of Charles's life and of something more than about us, but about military service and commitment and patriotism. Thank you so much, Dana. It's Thank my you, pleasure. Audience. Thank all of you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
This podcast was recorded on July 11th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.